Thank you, guys. Uh, I have to say, Jerry, that you are a, a great deal gentler in your introductions than your father ever was. He uh, typically, and I was introduced by Dr. Falwell hundreds of times, and he never let the opportunity pass to make fun of what he called my backwards collar. But guys, and, and Jerry, you may want to think about this as a new look for liberty. There, there are advantages to dressing like this. A few years ago, I spoke to a crisis pregnancy banquet up in the northwest corner of Georgia, and I had to uh, drive back to Atlanta to catch the red eye over to Houston to speak again the next morning, and I'm driving down the interstate about 1 o'clock in the morning, across northwest corner of Georgia, and hadn't seen another car in a half an hour. Everything was dark and quiet, and speed limit was 65, and I was going about 90. So, suffice it to say, I was not rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, all of a sudden, there were all kinds of lights, red lights and white lights and blue lights and flashing. And I pulled over to the side of the interstate, and I watched with a sinking feeling in my rearview mirror as this big old Georgia State Trooper gets out of his patrol car and hikes his gun belt up over his belly and puts his hand on the butt of his pistol and walks up alongside my car. Now, I'm dressed just like this. And his hand still on his gun, he leans over and he looks in. And as he walked toward me, all I could think of was the theme music of deliverance playing over and over and over again. He leans over, his hand still on his gun, and he looks at me, and he laughed. And I thought, oh, sweet Jesus, it's a Baptist deacon, I'm going to jail. And he took his hand off his gun, and he reached in and shook his finger under my nose, and he said, Forgive me, Father, but you have sinned. <laughs> and I said, Mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. And he said, Go forth now and sin no more. <laughs> so, Chancellor, you may want to get you one of these, unless you always and faithfully obey the speed laws. We are here this morning to talk about life at a critical moment in the life of our nation and in the struggle for life in America. Let me try and put all of this in a bit of a personal perspective. A few years ago at Our Savior in Houston, we were building a new church, and as part of that process, congregation sent me over to Central Europe to study Reformation church architecture. And so on the day after Christmas, December 26th, my two sons, Adam and Aaron, whom I took along to run all the fancy cameras and recorders and technical equipment that nobody over 30 knows how to work these days, and I flew out of Houston and we landed in Berlin, the capital city of Germany. And Adam and Aaron loved Berlin. I was looking at churches. They were looking at other things. A couple days later, on December the 28th, I rented a van and we drove out into the German countryside to a little farm town. 
about 20 kilometers outside of Berlin, called Oranienburg. No one had ever, would ever have heard of that place. They grow potatoes there. Were it not for the fact that Heinrich Himmler chose Oranienburg as the site of one of his first prototype concentration camps, a wretched place sarcastically called in German Sachsenhausen, the home of the Saxons. Now, it was a typical late December day in northern Germany, just a few miles south of the Baltic Sea. The sun comes up about 10 o'clock in the morning, and it goes down again about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and in between it snows or sleets or rains. And it was doing all three of those things that December day. And when we got to the memorial that is now at Sachsenhausen, it was completely deserted. There were no visitors, there were no attendants, nobody. We walked through the wrought iron gate with its lying slogan, Arbeit macht frei, work makes freedom. You see, they wanted the inmates to believe that if they behaved themselves and worked hard enough, they just might survive their experience at Sachsenhausen. But that was a lie like everything else in that devilish place was a lie. You didn't find freedom there. No matter how hard you worked, you found nothing but torment, torture, degradation, and death. We walked across a large snow-covered field where hundreds of wooden barracks housing thousands of inmates had once stood, then passed through a museum and as we began this journey, the boys were pushing each other and joking and jostling. And, uh, but as we passed through this museum, they began to get quieter as we looked at piles of thousands of children's shoes with pictures of the emaciated little ones who had been starved and beaten to death at Sachsenhausen were depicted on the walls and bales of human hair shorn from the heads of the inmates to be used to make war materials, cloth for the soldiers. We went down underground into immaculately clean, gleaming, white-tile medical laboratories, surgical suites where grotesque experiments had been performed on living human beings without benefit of anesthetic, because as Jews or gypsies they were considered to be, as the Germans put it, lebensunwürdig leben, life unworthy of being lived. They were subhumans. The boys grew very quiet at that point as they imagined the sounds of the screams echoing through those laboratory rooms and the blood splattered across the walls as people flailed in agony and pain. Finally, way out in the back of the camp, we came to the crematoria, the ovens where they once burned the bodies of the dead. As I said, it was December 28th, three days after Christmas, and there on the ground in front of the crematoria was a withered white Christmas wreath with a satin ribbon and a gold inscription. I translated the German words for my sons. They said, from the Christians of Germany, we kneel before God in bitter regret 
and humble repentance, and we ask his forgiveness for the death of the Jews and all the rest who perished in this horrible place. We turned to go and we walked across the field once more. My older son Aaron came up alongside me and he put his arm around my shoulders in the condescending way that sons have with their fathers. And all he said was, you know, Dad, you need to keep giving those speeches you've been giving. I've been traveling across the country for years. That meant I hadn't been home a lot of times when they wanted me home. But there in the ruins of a Nazi concentration camp, for the very first time, my two pampered, protected American boys understood how much is at stake as we discuss abortion here in America and how much we stand to lose if we as a people, if we as Christians in this land do not stand together for life. Now, those boys have always been pro-life. We vote in every election. We vote for life. But there at Sachsenhausen, that knowledge moved from their heads to their hearts. And they really understood. That needs to happen in the heart of every Christian in America if we are to win this battle. For 35 years, the killing has continued. Over 40 million dead. Innocent little boys and girls cast aside like so much garbage. Unknown, unrecognized, an inconvenience, a burden that every American woman has the inalienable right since Roe versus Wade to decide not to bear. Over 40 million little ones, each one of them known by name by the Lord of life, each one of them formed by the miracle of his creative hand, each one of them loved and cherished by him. And as every one of those 40 million plus babies has died, a part of the soul of America dies with them. Their death affects not merely the girl who had the abortion or the boy who fathered the child. It affects every one of us as our perspective on life changes. History tells us that when a nation begins to chip away at the borders of human life, when a nation begins to deny or to compromise the sanctity, the unique value of human life, that nation begins to die. 35 years, 40 million plus. The killing goes on and America has changed. If we had known 
1973. If the Christians of America had stood with one voice then, together, for life, we could have stopped it. But now, 35 years later, abortion has been woven into the fabric of our American consciousness. The devil is a gradualist. He's patient. He's willing to wait. He has always been since the beginning. If the tempter had come to our mother Eve in the Garden of Eden and said, Honey, I'm the devil. I was once one of the highest archangels of heaven. I rebelled against God. I have been cast out and condemned to an eternity of torment apart from God in hell. And I'd like you to join me. We'd all still be in the Garden of Eden. The devil did not tell the truth that day. He cannot tell the truth. As our Lord said, he is the first liar, the father of the lie. And when he lies, he's speaking his native language. He takes us one little step at a time so that we don't recognize where we're going. We don't realize what is being lost until it is too late. 35 years, 40 million plus dead. Americans who could have enriched our country with their talent, their energy, their ability, their personality. 40 million plus cast aside. While the church carries on its business as usual, a whole generation has come and gone. We've become accustomed to the killing. We don't take our own rhetoric seriously anymore. Would we have tolerated the death of 40 million Americans in any other category? Would we have tolerated the killing of 40 million Americans because of their race or ethnicity? I think not. I hope not. Would we have tolerated the murder of 40 million one or two-year-olds? or 70 or 80 year olds on either end of the age spectrum? I think not. I hope not. But we have been conditioned gradually, slowly, without recognizing it, without seeing that it was happening. We've become accustomed. Even those of us who are pro-life, who talk about the language of the pro-life movement. We've become accustomed to the killing as a part of what it means to be an American. It does not horrify us the way it should, the way it must, if we are ever going to put a stop to the murder of innocent unborn children. We as Christians must recognize that while all issues under debate in the political arena have moral implications on which the Christian conscience can be brought to bear. In the great majority of those issues, there is room for a variety of opinion among Christians. We can, in good conscience, disagree with one another as to what to do about immigration or the economy or the war in Iraq or foreign policy. But on this single issue, on the question of abortion, there is only one Christian 
position. Anyone, everyone who bears the name of Jesus Christ must stand for life. On this single issue, there is no room for compromise. There is no room for patience. There is no time to wait. We must stand for life absolutely, unequivocally, and impatiently. John Adams, one of our founding fathers, noted years ago in the days of America's origin that the problem with democracy is that you get the kind of leaders you deserve. We can blame no one but ourselves for 35 years of killing. Our politicians cut deals, make adjustments, bend and wave with every change in public opinion because that's what politicians do. These guys may not be very good at morality, but they can count and they recognize that most Christians don't vote. Most Christians are not registered to vote. And of, those, of that minority that is registered to vote, most of them don't vote as Christians. We vote as Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals or Southerners or Northerners or upper class or middle class or lower class or white or black or Hispanic or whatever. But somehow, as we make all of those calculations and participate to whatever extent we do in this democracy that God has given us, the Lord Jesus gets lost in the shuffle. If America is ever to turn from the path of death to walk again in the way of life, then we must remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Scripture proclaims and whom we profess to serve, cannot be isolated into one day with one group of people. If the Lord Jesus Christ is truly our Lord, then he must be the Lord of all. He must be our Lord not only in the church house, but in the White House. He must be our Lord when we vote our convictions as Christians for life and for family. And if we do, if we are willing to take that risk and make that stand, then even now, 35 years into our own Holocaust, the soul of America can still be saved. Adolf Hitler was first elected Chancellor of Germany in 1933. He boasted to the cronies within his inner circle that Nazis had nothing to fear from the Church of Jesus Christ. He said that the pastors of Germany were in, would be easily intimidated that they would be silent, that they would look the other way, that they would, to use his words, betray their God for us. He promised we will trap them by their notorious greed. They will be afraid of losing their miserable incomes and their jobs. They will allow us to do whatever we want to do. 
And they did. They looked the other way. They minded their own business. They kept their religion and their politics strictly separate from one another. And what happened was more than a horrendous holocaust, the death of six million Jews and others. But what happened was a betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ and a discrediting of his gospel. One of the Christians who recognized what was happening in his nation was a Prussian nobleman named James Helmut von Moltke. Von Moltke was an aristocrat from East Prussia who has who had come from a family that had produced the field marshals, the generals, the prime ministers that had governed Germany for centuries. He was a part of the foreign service. He represented his country across the world. As he went to the fine universities and schools of Europe for his education, he moved away from the Christian faith of his childhood and became a sophisticated worldly man. But then came Hitler and the evil of Nazism. And that proud aristocrat recognized that there was no force that could overcome this evil except the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came back to his faith. And he became a Christian once again. And he gathered around himself a small group of other believers who met at his country estate in East Prussia at a place called Kreisau. And of course, the Gestapo soon figured out what they were up to, arrested them all, charged them with treason. Von Moltke was taken before a Nazi people's court in Berlin. The judge presiding at his trial for treason was a fanatical Nazi named Roland Freisler. And Moltke began that trial for his life with this opening statement. He said, I stand here today not as a German, not as a Prussian, not as an aristocrat, not as a Lutheran. I stand here today as a Christian and nothing else. Well, that was too much for the Nazi judge. He was up out of his seat, leaning out over his desk, snarling at the defendant as he said, that's one thing and the only thing that you Christians and we Nazis have in common. We both demand the whole man. That day the devil spoke the truth, reminding us that there is no partial service of the Lord Jesus. He is either the Lord of all or he is not the Lord at all. American Christianity has been A-W-O-L for the last 35 years, absent without Lord. We need to proclaim, not only in our words, but also in our deeds, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is not optional. It is a core component of our Christian faith. Because when we fail to do so, our actions deny and contradict our words and undermine the authenticity of the gospel which we seek to proclaim. Another one of those 
rare opponents of the evil of Nazism on the basis of his Christian faith was a pastor named Martin Niemöller who was arrested by the Gestapo because of his fearless biblical sermons about God's love for all people, denouncing the government's policies of arresting, deporting, and executing the Jews. Niemöller was hauled away from his parsonage in the dark of one night by the agents of the Gestapo and thrown into jail. Thrown into the holding cell in Moabit City Jail in downtown Berlin, along with the drunks and the prostitutes who had been arrested the night before. He sat there again dressed just like this in that jail cell. And the Lutheran prison chaplain was making his rounds at dawn the next day. He came to see who had been arrested. He was horrified to find a fellow clergyman sitting there in the cell. And he said, my brother, why are you here? What did you do? Niemöller looked back at him and he said, my brother, given what's happening in our country, why aren't you here? That is the question that the Lord Jesus would have every one of us ponder this morning. 35 years into the abortion holocaust, 40 million dead. Why aren't we there standing in the front line for life? Why aren't we holding the banner of life as our first and foremost priority? After all of this killing, for all of these years, this is no longer one issue among many. This must be our only issue. We must become what the media condescendingly and sarcastically dismisses as single-issue fanatics on this question. We must stand for life, unequivocally, absolutely for life in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the world's not going to like that. The world's going to ridicule and scorn and make fun of us. But that has always been the price of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. If you are peacefully coexisting with the unbelieving world in which we live, it's not the world having become Christian that allows that peaceful coexistence. It is Christians having become worldly that permits that coexistence to go on. We've gotten too comfortable. We've had it too easy, too long. After 35 years and 40 million plus dead, we don't want a place at the table in American politics. We want a new table. We want an entirely different approach where the moral issues come first, where the moral voter turns out in unprecedented numbers to vote his or her conscience as sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then and only then will American politics change. It's a daunting, difficult task seemingly overwhelming. Martin Niemöller would later remember that that morning in that jail cell, 
was the lowest point in his spiritual life. He felt forsaken, forgotten, and alone. He cried out to God in anguish as a Nazi guard resplendent in a black SS uniform with the death heads, death's heads emblems and the swastikas on the arms came to get him and lead him across the street through a tunnel to the courtroom where he would be tried. He cried out to God and he said, I can't do this anymore. I'm all by myself. I'm all alone. Nobody's listening. The church has abandoned me. My fellow pastors won't have anything to do with me. All my fellow Christians view me as some sort of extremist and fanatic. I'm all done. I'm finished. I can't do this alone. And as he was walking through the tunnel with that guard, he heard a voice. And he looked around and there was nobody there but him and the Nazi. He leaned over toward that tall, ramrod, straight SS guard. And this is what he heard. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. Proverbs 18.10. God's word for God's man at God's moment. If we will take this stand, then God will stand with us. If we will be faithful to him and believe in the power and the promise of his word, then we can snatch our country back from the brink of destruction. We can stop the killing that is destroying the soul of America, one innocent unborn child at a time. The odds are overwhelming. The prospects from any practical perspective are impossible to imagine after 35 years. But while politics is the art of the possible, Christianity has always been the art of the impossible. Outcomes are not our problem. Remember Moses stuttering and stammering at the burning bush about how this couldn't be done, it wasn't going to work, Pharaoh wouldn't listen, he wasn't the right man, he had a speech impediment, he couldn't talk, da-da-da-da-da-da, his long list of excuses and evasions. And God brushed that all aside, as he still does with our excuses and evasions, and said, do what you're told, and I'll take care of the rest. Outcomes are not our problem. We are not called to be popular or successful. We are called to be faithful. And if we will be faithful, then God will bless us. If we will stand together as Christians on the basis of his word, then we can stop the killing. We can stop the death of America's soul. We can be the stinging salt and the shining light that Christ calls and empowers us to be. We can save our country. We can validate our gospel. We can glorify our Lord if we will stand together for life, for family, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. God bless you.